Hi everyone, this week we spoke to Sevene Selassie. Sevene is a meditation teacher, author and speaker. She's also a three-time cancer survivor and her work focuses on the areas of belonging and identity. Our conversation looked at her journey into meditation and her work in unconscious biases, amongst much, much more. As ever, if you enjoyed the episode, please give us a rating and a review on iTunes. Hi, Sabine, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Harry? Yeah, I'm not too bad. Thank you. Um, to start with, we always ask about what people's kind of relationship to mental health is, but I think it might be more useful for you to kind of give give an overview of, of, of who you are, what you do, and all that kind of stuff, if you can do that fairly concisely. Sure, yeah. Um, my name is Sabine Selassie, and I am a meditation teacher and an author and <clears throat> I teach both in a Buddhist tradition and the insight tradition um, and I also teach secular mindfulness meditation and I do that in a variety of ways you know pre-pandemic uh, teaching silent retreats and workshops and um, things live and currently doing a lot of things online. I suppose the the first question would be how did you kind of come to, to meditation how did you find it and what sparked your interest in it? No, I'm really lucky that I kind of happened upon Eastern thought very young. So when I was a teenager, actually, my brother became what's colloquially known as a Hare Krishna. Um, And I'm almost 50 now, so this is a long time ago. And I uh, started going to Kirtan and going to lectures and um, you know, reading the Bhagavad Gita and all these different texts. By the time I got to my first year of university, I decided that I wanted to be a religious studies major. And I um, left kind of that, that tradition behind and became much more interested in Buddhism. And when I got out of university, I actually finally started meditating in my early 20s. In my mid-20s, I found a Zen teacher that I practiced with for a number of years. And then uh, over the years... Uh, practiced in different traditions, traveled through Southeast Asia, practiced in Thailand for um, a, a few months, and uh, now have been kind of firmly planted in the insight tradition, um, which comes from Theravadan Buddhism, which is uh, the Buddhism you find in Southeast Asia, uh, and have been teaching mindfulness as well for about a decade. Why was it that when you were studying it, you didn't you didn't really practice was it just a time a time management thing or just you know uh back then and uh to some extent now there was sort of a hesitation among scholars of religious studies and particularly of buddhism um to mix uh the intellectual academic study and practice so there was even sort of um the assumption that your objectivity would be watered down if you actually practiced so there were a lot of closet practitioners actually including um you know some of my professors uh and and i kind of just sort of unknowingly or unwittingly absorbed that divorce of practice and study and kind of had to reintegrate that back in um as i as i ventured on in my own practice that's really interesting i think i can draw maybe not not that similar parallel but in um in climate change in particular 
uh, there's quite a big gap between, and I'm like incredibly guilty of it myself, of uh, knowing exactly what's going on and knowing the things you can do to to protect the earth, but not really doing it. Um, so we had a meeting the other day, and it was it was in the sustainability group of our department, and I think we worked out I can't remember the exact number. I think we worked it out that our carbon footprint the average person in our group our carbon footprint was i think it was five it was either five or five hundred which is quite a big difference but it was one of those higher than the national average which is pretty shocking so i can i can see that that gap between kind of knowledge and practice in academia might not just be in um in the in the area that you studied in yeah, it's kind of that myth of objectivity that permeates maybe science and social sciences as well. Yeah, definitely. Um, so what were the kind of, once you started meditating um, in a more serious way, what, what were the kind of benefits you saw from it and what kept you what kept you coming back to it? In my experience, both my personal experience and what I see in students um, that I've encountered, it, most often we come to meditation because of some kind of suffering or pain. So um, except for maybe a few people who have a natural inclination towards meditation and sort of just fall into it, um, or maybe have been raised in an environment that really encourages it, most of us turn to it as a, a tool for something to help us with something. Um, for me, at that age, in my early mid twenties, it was mostly around heart heartache and heartbreak, um, and just general confusion and unhappiness in my life. So I turned to it, uh, you know, in a moment of a lot of pain. Um, I actually went and found the teacher that I found that I ended up working with for many years um, in a moment of heartbreak after a breakup. And I found that uh, it was not easy at all because what meditation, particularly mindfulness, asks us to do is to really open to our experience. We're usually trying to run away from pain and run away from difficulties. And mindfulness is teaching us to build a capacity to stay with our experience, whatever it might be. And it teaches us to create kind of more space and more um, allowing of whatever is happening. And the paradox is that that um, allowing actually invites transformation. So our the pain doesn't necessarily go away, but we develop a capacity of being with it with more ease. Um, so that's really what I experienced. And it's not that suddenly all of my pain went away, you know, this is a process. And so what I found is that every time I meditated, I could kind of open up to the heartbreak I was feeling. Um, and then the next week it would be the same process. And over time that created more spaciousness and capacity. Yeah. I think that's, we were talking before about my kind of use of meditation with, with chronic pain. And, and that is that notion of kind of focusing on it without really so when it's bad, when my flare-ups are bad, I kind of tend to focus on it. And that focus is saying, looking out for it and being like, oh God, this is happening again, tightening it up and associating it with, with a bad thing. But when, when I find mindfulness most helpful is when I can kind of look at it in a more, um, look at it at more of a distance and see what's actually going on rather than 
than what I expect to be going on. And that, and that means that I don't kind of tense in and around the, the pain and, and the, the, I think in, in a few books I've read, it, it's, it talks about secondary suffering. So it removes that kind of secondary suffering away from, from the first pain. But I don't know if I've kind of butchered that expl- explanation completely. Oh, it's a beautiful explanation. I really appreciate your insight into kind of the tightening or tensing. You use both of those words and um, that really resonates for me because it is a type of clinging, whether we're trying to hold on to a good experience or we're you know, f- forcing a, something we consider bad away, there is that tightening and tension and that's actually the extra suffering that we bring to pain. So one of the kind of modern mindfulness equations is pain times resistance equals suffering. Yeah. So, you know, we can't get rid of pain. That's the nature of life, but we can sort of soften so that we don't have that extra resistance that leads to to more pain or what we could call suffering. Yeah, definitely. And and something I've read that on listen to to you talk about is how you used um how meditation helped you during your treatment for cancer. And, and if you wouldn't mind talking about that a bit, how, how did you use meditation during that time and, and how did it complement, um, I suppose, more Western medical practices, more traditional practices and, and, and why was it particularly helpful for you during that time? Yeah. So I, unfortunately have had cancer three times. Um, I had, I was diagnosed with stage three breast cancer when I was 34 and then had two more subsequent um, diagnoses of stage four cancer. And uh, I luckily was a meditator already for about a decade when I was first diagnosed. So was able to really bring these practices into um, my experience of cancer and um, particularly my experience of treatment, which you know involved a lot of discomfort and pain, both emotional and mental, as well as physical. So, um, you know, I, I did a lot of what you just described really well, you know, in a, in a moment of pain of um, really caustic uh, chemotherapy treatment or um, post-surgery uh, in a hospital or at home, um, recognizing the pain and uh, not kind of attaching more suffering to it by trying to push it away, by um, going into stories of uh, what was me or, you know, is this going to get worse or um, how can I make this instantly go away or be better? Uh, and that relaxation, so not going into that tension or tightness around what's happening, again, either emotionally or physically, but actually bringing some relaxed, open, spacious awareness to it uh, just allowed me to have ease in relationship to what was happening. So practicing over and over again that I couldn't get rid of the pain of being sick or, you know, fearing for my life, but I could have a relationship of more kindness um, and more clear seeing about exactly what was happening in, in that particular moment. Did it kind of help? I don't know if this was your experience at all, but when you kind of got re-diagnosed the second time, did it help you with with a feeling of of maybe 
anger that that happened or or frustration yeah and again you know there's something paradoxical about practice about mindfulness practice because it's not that it helped with those feelings because i made them instantly go away or i didn't have them it actually allowed me to feel them more in a sense Mm. You know, because we often experience a bad feeling, whether that feeling is mental, emotional, or physical, and we think it's a mistake, we think it's a problem, and we usually think it needs to go away, um, or we grasp for what we consider to be good feelings. Uh, and, and so instead, those feelings of fear or frustration or, or even rage at being diagnosed so young and again... Um, I could actually f- allow myself to feel the heartbreak or the upset um, and again, create more space around those feelings uh, so that I didn't need them to go away, but I also didn't need them to kind of rule me or, or you know, to get completely lost in them. Yeah, I think that's probably one of the biggest misconceptions of mindfulness and definitely one that I went into, into it with is that um, you know, the issues that I was using it for or started using it for were like the pain and my association or my expectation was that I'll do this once and I need to see the benefit of it straight away and I need to be in less pain having done it than I was in before but that's not really how it works and you were kind of talking about it there that it's a well first of all it's like a a longer term process and there's a reason why I suppose it's called practice, but also that um, there's a misconception that it, it will help you get rid of these things. But from, 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 from what you were just saying, it's not that, it's more learning to live with them and, and understand them a bit better. Yeah, to really be able to um, see things more clearly. Um, so to see that you might have habitual reactions to things, Um, And so to understand that about ourselves um, and then to really just be more kind with them, like bring that softening, that allowing and, um, and there's a a measure of, of, you know, self-compassion or self-kindness that's involved in that, that I think is a really key part of mindfulness. Sometimes we pay attention, um, no pun intended, to the attentional quality of mindfulness so, um, you know, we think of mindfulness as kind of bringing our awareness to something, but that awareness has this really profound uh, quality of kindness to it as well. So, um, um, you know, we can kind of play this sly game of, okay, if I allow it, then it'll go away. Um, and so we can kind of get into this, this game of mindfulness of, you know, oh, if I just bring awareness to it, then it'll soften or get a little easier. And, and that needs it, our kind attention as well, just to see how we're, you know, constantly trying to run away from what we're feeling and try and manipulate our experience. So um, mindfulness sometimes can be described more as like an attitude you know, this, this capacity to, to really um, just accept the humanness of our, of our reality, that we, none of us will get a, through life without experiencing some form of illness, um, some forms of pain uh, on, on various levels, and, and, and to really um, 
you know, be gentle with ourselves in that process. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, that's really interesting. Um, and, and, and something that I've seen you heard you talk about is how a lot of meditation, um, the classes around meditation and the, the kind of setup of it is a very kind of, especially in the States. And I think it's, it's just as true here in the UK is a very white kind of middle-class dominated um, environment. And I was wondering, first of all, why, why do you think that is? And is it up to the, the people that are there that, to create a more inclusive environment and the people in the class to create a more inclusive environment? Um, you know, I think that that's a, it's a very complex uh, investigation also because we live in a complex society um, in places like uh, the UK or the U S where we have more kind of multicultural dynamics going on. Um, so the reason why it's that way largely is because uh, of the people who traveled to Asia mostly in the 60s and 70s, although you know a lot of um, translations of Buddhist texts and Eastern teachings happened much earlier, um, which also opens up like the colonial project of um, this, the introduction of, of, of Hinduism and Buddhism to to the West, um, but let's just kind of attend to kind of the, the rise of mindfulness here is due to basically all these white young people um, going to India and Southeast Asia um, in the 60s and 70s and studying with all these great Asian masters. And when coming back, kind of filtering it through their lens, um, uh, which was predominantly white middle and upper middle class um, because that's what these people were and so that even the translation of the teachings came through particular voices uh, so some of the cultural background of these teachings got lost in the way and that was somewhat intentional particularly with mindfulness um, there was a desire to create kind of a secular version of these teachings so that it could be introduced into hospitals and settings where um, you know people weren't going to be open to the, the cultural reality of these teachings and where they came from. But in doing that, they also erased something, um, you know, kind of erased the origins. Um, and the intentions were good in the sense that they wanted these teachings to have a, a wider um, uh, reach. But um, in that kind of erase the origins of this coming from particular communities and people, particularly from people of color. And then simultaneously, of course, you have heritage Buddhist communities that are doing these meditation practices um, in their temples or, or wats or um, centers. Uh, so it's this kind of strange um, dynamic happening where uh, these teachings are being translated in one way over here and experienced in another way in communities. So then you have a modern mindfulness movement that is um, inherently very white in its, its composition of who is teaching it, but also in its expression of how it's being, being taught. So um, I think that there are some people of color who are still able to 
have received those teachings, even though they might be the only ones in the room. And there is uh, a lot of tension as there is in many settings in universities and schools and in workplaces around kind of the cultural dominance um, of whiteness and uh, dominant culture and, and how it's expressed in general. So there are movements to have more teachers of color, which I think is probably kind of the, the best way for um, students of color to hear their, these teachings expressed in a different way, to have a reflection at the front of the room, because there are just general power dynamics that happen otherwise. Um, and, you know, that's a, com that's a complex project in itself. Um, to make sure that there is a diversity of voices kind of expressing these teachings and paying attention to the history of how these teachings originated and how they've been translated and how we got here in the first yeah, place. Yeah, and is there also, I suppose, a kind of issue of accessibility in that? Yeah, for sure. And um, that is also being paid attention to as well. And um, I'm not sure how it is in the UK, but in the US, there's been more and more attention, both in Buddhist spaces, um, but also in secular mindfulness spaces to scholarships, to accessibility, to um, to the training of teachers and organizations themselves around these issues of uh, inclusivity and equity, but also to um, making sure that there are spaces available. And then again, that then there isn't harm done to those people um, when they're brought into spaces and the teachings are you know, presented in a particular way. Again, so training teachers of color and leaders of color is an important part of that process too. Yeah. And something that that i've heard you talk about is um is the kind of is kind of unconscious biases particularly towards race and and how that quite often again i might be not explaining this particularly well but how quite often we can use mindfulness to kind of acknowledge that that everyone has these but that it's much harder to translate that in into action so i'm wondering if you could speak a bit more about that and perhaps explain it a bit better than i did <laughs> well you know there's um there's such a, a surge right now and awareness around um the construct of race and how it's inherently tied into racism and particularly the the roots of it being in um, anti-blackness and how that permeates out through um, the colonial project and through the history of slavery in general. So um, we have all been affected by those hundreds of years of historical um, programming that way. And one thing that mindfulness really teaches us is to start to begin to see our own programming and our, our own habits of, um, of mind uh, and so uh, there's an interest right now in unconscious bias and seeing how um, these biases play out in, in very harmful ways, obviously through the, the Black Lives Matter movement we're seeing, particularly right now, the, the surge in um, attention around police brutality and police killings. Um, 
And uh, so mindfulness, of course, you know, we can become more clear about conscious racism and, and people who hold those values, but most of us uh, have conscious egalitarian values and goals, but we're really ruled by the unconscious um, and the unconscious doesn't change through our conscious wishes, but through a real attention to these patterns and habits of mind that can only really be seen if we have this capacity trained. So for me, um, you know, this, this moment that we are living right now of attention to these deep-seated issues are, are only really changeable through a practice like mindfulness. And you know, mindfulness is just a particular term for for bringing um, awareness to uh, this deep patterning. Um, but for me, it, it's it's really been the best tool. Um, and I don't see how we can do work around unconscious bias without mindfulness, because again, you know, the most important part of that phrase is unconscious. Like these are implicit. Uh, habit patterns they're conditioned into us um, because our society is steeped in them and has been for a long time and to undo them we need to kind of go below the layer of i want to be a good person um, to really starting to pay attention to uh, the ways we react to different people to different situations to different information you know what we pay attention to what we don't pay attention to and and we can do that um, not only in our personal lives, and so you know, we've both experienced how much this practice can help us with our own physical pain or our own emotional pain, but it can also help us in relationship and in society. So when you start to acknowledge those unconscious biases that you have, is it, I think a lot of people will think that, you know, I, that they are a good person they believe in equality and that actually it might be a bit uncomfortable for them like anyone because everyone has these unconscious biases that it might be a bit uncomfortable for them to explore those and and how would they how would it translate from from people starting to explore them to um to turning into i suppose more active intentions and actions yeah, you know, so the the um, we can take conscious actions to create change in the world, and it's it's not that we we don't do that, but what um, the this practice does with unconscious biases and unconscious um, patterns is allows us to bring the same um, practice of clarity and kindness, you know, bringing awareness and allowing, and again to. Uh, allow that practice to in, open us to that tra that uh, paradoxical transformation. So it's just like with physical pain. You know, when I see uh, kind of a bias arise in me, as um, and and I I can admit to this myself. You know, the tension I might feel. Um, walking down a dark street and a young black kid starts walking towards me. So rather than push that away, I can actually notice, oh, look at me, you know, falling into the bias and stereotypes that are prevalent and assuming something about this young guy I don't know. Um, so it's it's not by 
by pushing it away, but by allowing it and bringing some kind of just kind uh, investigation to it. Um, you know, often when we when we experience something we don't like, whether it's physical pain or seeing bias, we want to push it away. We want to change it. We want to make it better. But it it, it has a lighter touch to it, mindfulness, and it it allows for um, you know these sort of gentle stereotype replacements. And one of the things I used to say to myself when I would notice that kind of, um, of, uh, of thought pattern arising is like, I don't know, you know, he could be a Rhodes Scholar for all I know. Um, and that in, in technical terms, that's called stereotype replacement. But it, it's a really gentle way to, to just start to question and undo patterning that has just become so, so habitual. Yeah, there was, we would, we, I spoke to a, um, a doctor last week and he was saying he's he works in psychiatry uh he's a graduate from harvard but he's also a six foot six very well built black guy and that the differences in how people react to him when he's wearing his kind of name badge which says doctor and when he's you know maybe in his more casual stuff going to the going to the shop or something is is kind of huge um, so I was I, kind of building on that. Do you, how has um, everything that's going on in America, whether it be uh, the coronavirus and also the kind of exposure of police brutality and, and the marches, how has that been for you mentally, I suppose? And also has it, has it changed your practice at all? Or have you found ways... Uh, to to look at those things through your practice well you know at this point it's hard for me to not to i look at everything through my practice <laughs> but um there's been so much going on here you know i live in brooklyn which is a hot spot and so i was just saying to someone yesterday you know we went from hearing ambulances night and day to then hearing police sirens and helicopters um all through the night to now um, there's a phenomena of fireworks happening. Um, I think that it's you know young people um, in the neighborhood being uh, sold fireworks that um, couldn't be sold otherwise and also given fireworks by who knows who. Um, and so there's just been a lot of noise and a, a lot of activation. And I noticed that in myself that I've had to really up my uh, practice and my attention to um, kind of using the practice to help calm and regulate my system um, because there's so much uncertainty, um, there's so much tension just around in terms of uh, people having a lot of fear and anxiety. Um, and particularly around just kind of the race awareness that's growing and the consciousness that's shifting in this country it's it's also quite intense. Um, I luckily live in a place, uh, I live in a black neighborhood and um, I live in a, a very diverse city. So I don't necessarily feel the, the backlash of what might be happening in other parts of the country. I actually feel this surge of uh, excitement and hopefulness around me. So that's really exciting. Um, and I also, um, you know, I'm concerned about a, backlash either politically or culturally in this country 
Uh, and, and I know that's part of the process. Um, you know, change often doesn't come easily, especially from dominant systems of power. Um, but I am encouraged by people's awareness and attention to it. Um, my, my hope is that particularly white people who are being awakened right now um, and non-Black people of color who are uh, awakening to the perniciousness and power of anti-Black racism, that that attention kind of doesn't wane um, before we can really start to make um, you know, strong headway and systemic change. But you know, we need the interchange. We need people to recognize what's going on in themselves um, in order to have a real uh, powerful systemic change. Yeah, that, that has kind of raised quite an interesting, well, you might not find it interesting, but an interesting thought for me that how do you balance um, the desire for change and, and the striving for change um, and the frustration that maybe things aren't happening quick enough. There's a perception of mindfulness that it makes you become passive or that, you know, you become dispassionate about certain issues. So what would you say, what would you say to people that, that, that say that or that get very frustrated by the slow pace of change and, and how can mindfulness be incorporated in that, I guess? Um, you know, I think there's some, there can be some truth to, it's not necessarily about the dispassion, but it's, um, there, there is a tendency among many uh, Western mindfulness practitioners to make this only kind of an internal process. So I find the dispassion or the lack of attention to the outer world um, when we only use our practice to focus in on our personal improvement project, let's say, um, you know, can lead us to disconnect from what's happening around us. But I think true mindfulness, and this is even in the classical teachings, is both internal and external, and it says, and both internal and external. So we build this capacity, not only for self-awareness, but for awareness of what's going on around us and, um, and for seeing kind of the interconnection between the two. Uh, so I really believe that um, the clarity and kindness, sometimes referred to as wisdom and compassion, and that capacity to see clearly what's going on within us and around us and to bring um, more kindness and compassion to it. Uh, I think that's such a, a powerful tool for um, change. And part of that clarity and wisdom is just seeing the long arc of history, you know, all the causes and conditions, you know, to use Buddhist term, like all the karma, which is really um, complex, you know, many, many forces and, and many different happenings led to this moment. And so to think that it'll change just because I've changed or just because I want things to change, um, you know, really doesn't do justice to uh, the amount of um, factors involved 
you know, if we're talking about racism, you know, economic, health, um, environmental, social, political, there are a lot of systems, a lot of forces, a lot of organizations, a lot of corporations, a lot of um, people that uh, are involved in, in making change happen. Uh, so just trusting that if we keep moving forward and gather more momentum that, that you know, change, change will come regardless. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's true. Now, whether that's change we want or not, that's, that's, our, that's our, our role to play. Yeah, I think that's really good advice. And to, to finish, we always ask how you, how you personally look after your, your mental health. But I suppose a more pertinent question would be, what does your practice look like at the moment? Is it kind of slightly more informal or is it more structured? It's both. Um, I do a formal practice every morning. My husband and I practice together. And uh, that's been really important. I'm a big proponent of laying down meditation. Yeah, which... I think, I, sorry, I, I, I definitely, I think for me, I agree with that because um, kind of sitting straight and upright is kind of causes me to get a bit stiff and sore, but um, I'd be interested to know why, why, um, why you think lying down practices is good. I think it's good because um, in my experience, most Westerners, um, their problem is not being too relaxed, <laughs> that most of us are wound up. Um, and particularly at this moment, there is so much vigilance. And, you know, you described it well as tightness and tension um, in our bodies and minds. And we can bring that same quality to our practice, especially when we feel like we have to sit up straight and, you know, we have some idea of a, a full lotus position floating somewhere off the ground as like the height of, of true meditation practice. And um, that real letting go and relaxation that I think is what a lot of us in this um, kind of modernized cultures need is really supported by allowing yourself to release into the ground. Um, and we can actually experience the physical reality of what we are um, aspiring to in our minds and hearts, which is this real letting go of um, this need to get somewhere, this need to change or fix, so that um, we're more available in our lives from this really balanced place. You know, we're often entering into our workday, our time with our children or in the world um, from this tension of like, I need to do this and I need to do that and why and I, I didn't do this or um, and we kind of um, ricochet between overactivity and collapse. You know, then we completely sort of vegetate out in front of a Netflix marathon and we just sort of ricochet back and forth between being super overactive and then collapse, super overactive and collapse. And we're really trying to find that balance where we're available for moving forward or for moving away from something, um, but not in this kind of ricochet way, but a, a real clear understanding of what it is we want to do in the world. Yeah, that's, that's really cool. And where can we find more about what you do, your teaching, your book, all that kind of stuff? 
Oh, great. Yeah. So I have a book coming out at the end of August, uh, all about belonging, um, uh, identity, uh, connecting to ourselves, connecting to others uh, across difference and really recognizing that we belong to each other. It's called You Belong. Um, and you can find information about it and about me on my website, sabanaselassie.com, or I'm on Twitter and Instagram at sabanaselassie. Brilliant. That's been, been really interesting. Thank you so much. Thank you, Harry. Really nice to talk to you. I really hope you enjoyed that episode. Just a quick note to say that although the things Seven and I talked about, we may find helpful, I'm not a trained medical professional. If you're struggling with your mental health, please contact your GP or an organisation like Samaritans on 116 123.